the joy of uh, preaching the Word of God this morning, and I'm so thankful for that. You have no idea how grateful I am that I get to do this. Uh, before we jump into the, into the message, so if you're timing me, don't start that yet, okay? But Because uh, I was asked to give a couple of announcements, all right? And so the first announcement I want to share with you guys is we are a week away from Christmas Eve, right? We're so excited, uh, and the reality is that next week we'll be full here, okay? This room will be crowded, and praise the Lord for that. Now, for those of you who are members or regular attenders, we want to ask you this morning, would you, as the church, think of ter in terms of hospitality next week? How can you serve the church next week through your hospitality? Maybe one of those ways might be, like, maybe don't drive in separate cars. Come together so there's enough parking lot for everyone. When you sit, make sure maybe you're sitting in the center so that the, you know, the sides of the, of the aisle are free for people that are coming. If you see someone who's new here and looks a little lost or uncomfortable, maybe help them out. But let's make sure the next Sunday as we gather, may we just love one another and serve those that may be visiting. You know, the reality is there are people that only come to church on Christmas Eve. And you know what? We pray that they come next Sunday. And we're thankful that they're here. So let's love them and think in terms of hospitality. Now, we usually, on, on Christmas Eve, we usually have a Christmas Eve service. Um... Uh, and, and by that I mean like an evening Christmas Eve service, and this year we will not be doing that. But if you are looking for a Christmas Eve service that night, we do want to recommend uh, that you go to Crosswalk in North Titusville. Crosswalk is a church we love, and it is also part of Grace Partnership, and you guys know and love Alex. And so if you, since we will not be having a service here, you guys are welcome to join Crosswalk. Go there, bring your family there, and uh, worship with another part of the body here in Titusville. And lastly, it's at 6 o'clock, thank you, 6 p.m. Uh, at, at Crosswalk. <clears throat> um, and lastly... I want to remind you guys that uh, in the new year, as we start a new year, it's a great opportunity to start a new Bible reading plan. I know, maybe last time you, you know, were in a Bible reading plan, you gave up in the middle of Leviticus or whatever. Um, but the Lord gives us seasons, He gives us times, and we have a new opportunity to start fresh. And so um, our team, and Kim in particular, did a great job. They put a, web, uh, a, a page in our website together about reading the Word. They have uh, Bible reading uh, resources that might help you determine uh, how you're going to be reading the Bible next year. The reality is it doesn't matter how you read it. It doesn't matter how much of it you read in one sitting. But let us make it a point that in the new year, we are spending intentional time uh, marinating in the Word of God. And so we have resources. Please visit it. Go to our website. And uh, there's a, a number of resources there that will be uh, helpful as you plan your next year. Um, and with that said, how about we jump into today's message? This morning we will continue our Advent series. So now I'm starting my timer. Um, <laughs> uh, this, uh, this is today is the third Sunday of Advent. And you may remember last week... Um, Tim walked us, well, two weeks ago, Josiah uh, walked us through uh, a chapter in Isaiah, and he talked about the promise of a deliverer from the perspective of the prophet Isaiah. 
Then last week, Tim walked us through a text that is commonly known as the Annunciation, right? Where, where Angel Gabriel tells Mary the shocking news that she would be carrying the Son of God. That's shocking. It's insane. Um, and this morning, we will continue with the story. We'll continue with the story, and we will read uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. We will be looking this morning at Mary's response to this wonderful news. Mary, a teenager who was a nobody from nowhere important, has a lot to say. Is the mic working okay, or is it just me? Okay, you guys can hear me? Because, all right. Anyways, Mary was a teenager, a nobody from nowhere important, but she has a lot to say. And this morning, I want us to look at the beautiful truth that she points us to in her song. Now, I find it a great privilege to preach from this passage because I got to confess, my first time preaching from this passage, I've never preached from Mary's song. Uh, and actually, this famous passage is called Mary's Song or, or the Magnificat. Uh, and I've never, I've never preached from it, and so I'm actually very excited. And though I'm excited, I do realize there is at least one hurdle before us that we need to overcome as we look at this text. By this, I mean that the familiarity that we have with this text might blind us to its beauty. This one feels like a classic Christmas message, which might cause us then to disengage because we feel like, being there, done that. It kind of feels to me, if we're not careful, it can kind of feel like, like the nutcracker for me, okay? Now, how many of us are familiar with the nutcracker? You know the nutcracker? Raise your hand. All right, we all know the nutcracker. Uh, now, so you know what I'm talking about. This popular Christmas ballet by Tchaikovsky is one of those Christmas staples, right? Every Christmas movies include, uh, at some point, or every Christmas movie at some point includes the, the, the song, The Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, right? We, we all know the song precisely because it's so iconic to the Christmas season. But how many of you guys actually know or could actually explain the story of the Nutcracker? I certainly can't. I, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, we got some tickets and we went to the Dr. Phillips Center to watch the Nutcracker. And uh, it was a wonderful performance, or so I hear, um, because it has to rank among the most expensive naps I ever taken, which, which says a lot... It says a lot more about me than it does about the performance, okay? Just to put that out there. You see, we, we paid for tickets. We dressed up nicely. We went to the theater. It was a wonderful performance. And within minutes, I fell asleep only to wake up to a giant mouse dancing with a bunch of toys. Uh, I literally still cannot tell you what the Nutcracker is about. Again, this says a lot more about me than it does about the performance. There's a reason it's a classic, but I fear that for many of us, this passage kind of feels like the nutcracker in that we will, um, in that there is this sense of familiarity, right? We go over it every year. But the question is, do we truly know what Mary's song, what Mary's song is about? So this morning, can I ask you, would you please lean in? Even if you have heard this passage preached many times, would you please lean in? I don't say this because I think I may have anything new to say about it, but because I believe that the Word of God is alive. Right. And I also believe that God in His wisdom and in His providence meant for you to listen to this sermon this morning. And so, 
Would you please lean in? Another thing I want to talk about before we jump into the text is I want to talk a, lot, uh, want to talk a little bit about the season of Advent. Because, you, you see, I believe that the background of Advent makes the promise of Christmas all the more glorious. So it is important that we understand the season of Advent and not rush towards Christmas. Okay? Sorry, there's a little sound. In order to explain Advent, I will be borrowing some language from Fleming Rutledge. Uh, but for those of us who didn't grow up celebrating the Advent season, I didn't growing up, um, we often think of Advent as in an Advent calendar, right? Uh, you know, the kind that has tiny little windows you open every day in December and find a little goodie, a candy, or a toy. Uh, last year at, at my house, we had uh, the office calendar because that's the kind of people we are. And so every day we open a little window and there was one of the characters from the office as a little Funko Pop, right? And we loved it. It was fun. It was cute. And yet it has nothing to do with what Advent is all about. The season of Advent, you see, is not a mere countdown to Christmas. It's just not, uh, Advent is not about the lights or the songs or the red cups at Starbucks, as great as those might be. Advent starts in the dark. It's a season where, as believers, we look around at the darkness of this world. A darkness that is both external and internal. The brokenness we see around us, suffering, pain, injustice, but also the brokenness that we see inside us. Sin, doubt, temptation, misery. But Advent... It's not just the time to look around, it is also a time to look up and to meditate on the promises that we have in Christ for a glorious future. The Advent season then is meant to shake us, to shake us awake to the reality of the darkness around us and to the reality that this world is not our home. And that for those who belong to God, we have a bright future to look forward to. <laughs> Fleming Rutledge again says, of all the seasons... Advent most closely mirrors the daily lives of Christians and of the church, asks the most important ethical questions, presents the most accurate picture of the human condition, and above all, orients us to the future of God who will come again. In Advent, we don't await Christmas, but the glorious second coming of Christ. And so this morning, we will look at Mary's song. Last week, like I said, we saw the angel's message to Mary, who announced that she would conceive a son and that his name would be Jesus. Now, for those of us who have children, we remember how exciting it was to learn that we would be parents. Andy and Audrey, you guys found out you're going to be parents, right? You had a, you had a, 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 reveal, a gender reveal party. It's exciting to know that you're going to be a parent. Now, for Mary, this wasn't great news because she was going to be a mom, but because the baby she would give birth to was the son of the Most High. Let me tell you, Mary wasn't having a, a gender reveal party. This promise, as we'll see in a moment, actually puts her in danger. During our, our worship set, Kelsey Schmidt read the passage uh, that follows the Annunciation, uh, and we see that Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who is also providentially pregnant. Uh, Elizabeth welcomes her with a song, and we are not going to read it again because we already read it. Uh, but Elizabeth understands that the baby in Mary's womb is her Lord. 
Imagine this. An older lady sees her teenage niece who is pregnant, and she says, that is my Lord. Now, in the song we're about to read, Mary sings a song of her own. And from it, we can learn a few things about what the promise of the gospel does to our hearts. What do you say we read this beautiful song? Would you stand with me for the reading of the word of God? Is this better? All right. Let me know if there's anything else I can do. All right, perfect. So let's read the passage. Verse 46, Luke 1, 46. It says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. And that is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that you have spoken to us through it. And we believe that by your spirit, you're speaking to us this morning. So we pray, Lord, give us humble hearts that we hear your word and be transformed by it, Lord. Lord, I pray that if there is anything that I say that comes from my own understanding, if there's anything that I add to this, Lord, I pray that that would fall down and be forgotten. Make us a people, Lord, that have the sermon and that love your word. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Now, before we unpack this beautiful song, I'd like to point out a few things. As Tim mentioned last week, Mary was a nobody from nowhere. She was a teenager from a backwater town in Galilee. And for that reason, there are those who think she didn't really write this song. There are scholars that think they question whether Mary actually wrote this song. Now, we have no reason to question whether Mary wrote it. As a matter of fact, because it is scripture, we know that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, Mary was also a good Jewish girl. So she would have grown up listening to the story, memorizing scripture. So there's really no reason for us to question whether Mary would have sang this song. I think there's a lot to say about Mary's response to the angel's message. As we just read this passage and as we continue reading it, I want you to notice that her response is informed by scripture. It is saturated with the word of the Old Testament. You see, the Word of God gives us vocabulary to relate to Him. What Mary had inhaled from the Word in her upbringing, she was now breathing out to God in praise as a response uh, to the message that she received. In these short few verses, Mary quotes Psalms. She quotes um, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. She quotes Genesis and other passages. Mary was filled with the word of God. Now, 
Here's a quick word for the younger folks. If you're growing up in the church, please don't believe the lie that you have to wait to be older in order to get serious about the word of God. Remember, Mary was a teenager. You too can start building habits that will sustain you through the ages. Now, start working in the Bible today. Your age is not an excuse to, uh, not to saturate your heart and mind with the Word of God. And may this be what we do. Not only our teenagers, but may we all work in habits of getting the Word into our hearts so that it would give us the vocabulary to relate to God. With that said, let's, let's unpack this great song. The first thing I want you to notice in verses 46 to 47 is that the promise of the gospel leads to worship and joy. In verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And the first thing I want us to see is the fact that this entire song is dripping with worship and with exaltation. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. But what does that mean? You see, John Piper says that there are two ways of thinking of magnifying or magnification. There's a microscope and a telescope, and they both can magnify. A, ma a microscope makes something small and tiny appear to be way bigger than it truly is. A telescope, on the other hand, zooms into something that is already big, and it brings it closer, and it helps us see it for what, it's tr for what it is truly like. Worship is natural to the human heart. We were made to worship. We are all worshipers. Sunday morning and the rest of the week, whether you're a Christian or not, you are a worshiper by nature. But you see, uh, when the object of our worship is not the God of the Bible, that's when we act like microscopes. Because we take something small, something tiny, and make it bigger than it truly is. You know, our hearts have the tendency of turning unimportant things into ultimate things. This is what we call idolatry. And it's natural for our heart to do that. Now, when Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, she's not looking at a small God and making him look greater than he truly is. Mary is not being a microscope. Her soul magnifies the Lord in the way that the telescope magnifies. The gospel promise she just received readjusted her view of life and helped her zoom in into the goodness of God and to see Him for, he, who, he, for who He really is. You see, the good news of the gospel leads us to worship and to adoration. And it is in this very act of worship that the Lord gives Himself to us, His people. In John 4, Jesus would tell the woman at the well, that the Father is seeking people that worship Him in spirit and in truth. Church, there is great danger in approaching the things of God with hearts that are disengaged. The promise of the gospel shakes our hearts awake and moves us to worship um, of the one and only King. Church, Advent is worship. And if we're not careful during this season, we might find ourselves acting like microscopes, magnifying things that, are ultimate, that ultimately don't matter. Isn't really that every TV commercial we see? Whether it's a Lexus commercial that is magnifying the importance of a beautiful car in your life, 
or even uh, more benign commercials like the Publix commercials, right? Everybody's sitting around the table. Uh, and, and, and that's cute and it's good and that's not a bad thing. But what these commercials do is that they magnify things and make them ultimate things. Church, those things aren't bad. If you have a Lexus, God bless you. I want one too. <laughs> so those things aren't bad. But we got to guard our hearts from magnifying them and making them ultimate. Mary reminds us that in our waiting, the right posture of the heart is worship. She shows, us, she shows us not only that we should worship, but she models for us why we worship and how we should worship. You see, we worship, first let's talk about the why. We worship because God invites us into communion with himself. And it's through worship that we give him the honor and praise that he deserves. Worship isn't about entertaining God or earning his favor. It's about responding to his self-revelation and acknowledging his infinite worth. Now the question might be in your mind, but how do we worship? You see, worship is not just an external act. It's not just me singing. It's not just me giving an offering. It's not an external act. It's a a heartfelt, I'm sorry, response to God's grace and love. Through worship, we confess our dependence on him. We express our gratitude and love and commit ourselves to obedience. Worship is a means of encountering God, experiencing His presence and being transformed by His Word and His Spirit. Church, you and I have already seen and benefited the fulfillment, or from the fulfillment of God's promise to Mary. That baby that was only a promise here We have benefited from his life, from his death, from his resurrection. And this should move us to worship. But the story doesn't end there. Because we also have a promise to look forward to. And this is the promise that he is coming back one day. Can I ask you this morning, how does this hit you? Does it move your heart to worship Or does it leave you just meh? Church, the right response, the promise of the gospel is worship and joy. Number two, I want you to see the promise of the gospel is for the humble. In verse 48, we see, for he has looked on the humble estate of a servant. And in verse 52, Mary says, he has brought down the mighty from the throne and exalted those of humble estate. Mary here is reminding us that the gospel is for the humble. Mary quotes Hannah in the Old Testament when she says that God has looked on her humble estate. You may remember as we went through 1st and 2nd Samuel last year, this year, some time ago, um, the term, you may remember Hannah coming to the temple and thanking God that he saw, that he, that he saw her humble estate. You know, the, the term humble estate is commonly used in the Bible to describe barrenness. But in this case, Mary is using it to describe the spiritual brokenness inside her. She recognizes she is not worthy of such privilege. Hopefully, you and I, like Mary, recognize our humble estate in that we know we are broken by sin and misery. But you see, 
like Adam and Eve, when we do that, when we see and recognize the, 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 the darkness of our hearts, when we recognize our utter need of a deliverer and a savior, like Adam and Eve, we might be tempted to hide from God. We might be tempted to, 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 to see the darkness and lose hope. But Mary does not do that. Mary looks at her humble estate in the eye. She recognizes her brokenness, but then she recognizes God's grace toward her. So instead of giving into shame, instead of running from God, instead of hiding from God, she gives into worship and gratitude. By saying this, Mary was also, by, by saying this, the, the, the fact that God loves the humble, Mary was foreshadowing what Christ himself would say one day, that he came not for the healthy, but for the sick. Church, notice that in the Christmas narrative, the news of the birth of Christ did not come to the wealthy, it did not come to, to, to those in power. It didn't even come to the religious folks. The good news of the gospel came to the lowly, to the poor, to the broken, to those who were aware of their brokenness and of their need of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, as, as uh, we read earlier, actually, during, the, during worship, someone read, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Church, Mary is poor in spirit. And that she is utterly aware of the fact that there is nothing she can do to save herself. There is nothing she can do to deserve God's love. To deserve His favor. Mary knows that God chose her. Not because she's great, not because she's pure, not because she's obedient. God chose her because he's merciful. Mary knows what Psalm 138.6 says. It says, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Church, humility is a mark of a Christian. We cannot truly understand the gospel if we do not understand our humble estate, our sin, our brokenness, our shame, our need. But instead of giving into shame, we as Christians, we present our brokenness to God, knowing that only He can turn it into something good. So the promise of the gospel leads us to humility. I can't be proud. I can't be arrogant if I understand that all I have is by grace. I cannot be arrogant and prideful if I understand that all I brought to the table was my brokenness and my need of a Savior. So the promise of the gospel leads us to humility. And a humble heart positions itself in worship. This leads me to my third point. And for this, I want you to look at the second part of uh, verse 48. It says this, it says, uh, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And here I want you to see that the promise of the gospel leads to blessedness. Mary says, From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Wait, didn't we just say she's humble? And now she's saying, now everyone's going to call me blessed. Is that what's going on here? No. 
She's blessed. And we might be thinking, of course she's blessed. She's carrying God in the flesh. But have you ever thought about the position she finds herself in in this moment? Where this promise puts her in? You see, she lives in a society where people who commit adultery are stoned. They're killed. Have you wondered why she felt the need to visit her cousin Elizabeth in the first place? Have you ever thought about why? Some believe that Mary would have been in danger as a pregnant teenager if she stayed home. Because remember, though she was betrothed, she was not yet married. So if people found out she was pregnant, she could have been lawfully put to death. But you see, in the middle of the danger, in the middle of this uncomfortable situation, she finds herself in telling people, God got me pregnant. In the middle of that dangerous position, she is aware that she is blessed, despite her circumstances, not because of them. Tim mentioned last week that true blessedness is, uh, has nothing to do with wealth or with earthly happiness. Ultimately, blessedness is not about human comfort or self-satisfaction, but about glorifying God. If you turn on Christian TV, you will often find people on TV telling you that God will bless you with finances and health. Let me tell you, that's not what the Bible tells us. The blessedness that we are promised in Scripture is far better than wealth. It's far better than even health. True blessedness is to know that our only hope for life and death is that we belong to God. To be blessed is to to live a life that reflects God's goodness and character. Um, And He is the ultimate source of true and lasting blessedness. Blessedness is knowing that no matter what, in Christ, we have a promise of eternal salvation knowing that our present circumstances do not define our future. You see, Mary has been called blessed by generations because she gave birth to the Son of God. It's true. But you know, the same Son of God that she carried in her womb was also born in our hearts. And for that, we too are blessed. Now, I want to address those of you that that Justin mentioned earlier during worship. You see, I'm aware that some of you may be going through a difficult season. In this, work, in, in, this, in this broken world, suffering is a reality, and it's ever-present. It's possible that some of you barely made it to church today. It's possible that maybe even anxiety and depression have been battering you, and you are only hanging by a thread. That is a reality for some of you. Maybe even all the Christmas carols sound hollow to you because of the cloud of darkness around you. You might be tempted, um, or you might even be dreading the next couple of weeks because of where you are today. Because maybe your circumstances are not ideal. Because maybe no movie would be made out of your circumstances today. Can I tell you this morning? First of all, can I say thank you for coming? Thank you for being here. Being here was the right move for you, no matter how hard it was to get here. 
But also, can I remind you this morning that if you belong to Christ, all these things that are battering you today, the mistakes, those that have sinned against you, your, 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 your depression, your anxiety, your loneliness, your brokenness, every single one of those things is temporary. If you belong to Him, you are blessed, not because of your circumstances, but in spite of them. Because Christ will come again one day. Because He has conquered death. You are blessed because He is making all things new, including you. Brother, sister, remember this morning, if you are Christ's, you are blessed. And make sure you preach it to yourself this morning. And make sure that you preach it to yourself every morning. I want to refer back to 1 Peter 1, verses 6, 6 through 9. And, and we, we read this during prayer this morning, and then Kim read it earlier. But I think it's important that we go back to this passage. And it's probably not going to be in the screen, but, but 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9 says this. It says, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you hear what this is saying? That the various trials that you have been grieved by will one day be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Then Peter keeps saying, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, uh, do you not, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Brother, sister, I don't know what's going on in your life today. I am ignorant of what may be going on. And you may be saying, Christian, you just have no idea what I'm going through. I don't. But this I know for sure, that if you are in Christ, you're blessed. And that all this that's going on around you is only material for your praise in the future, for, your, for the glory of God. Let's keep reading. I'm going to read verses 49 to 51, and I want you to see that the promise of the gospel reminds us of the perfections of God. Verse 49 says this, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And I want you to notice that Mary's song is not about her obedience. Mary's song is not about the things that she has done to deserve this position she's in. I want you to notice that Mary's song is all about what God has done for her. And here Mary lists three perfections, divine perfections or attributes about God. She tells us that God is mighty. She tells us that God is holy. And she tells us that God is merciful. First, Mary tells us that God is mighty and that He has done great things for her. 
God is mighty, not only because Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, but also because he has made a way for salvation, not just for, me, for Mary, but for many. Our God is mighty to save. And this mighty God looked down to our brokenness and loved us enough to save us. This includes you, whether you know him yet or not. If you believe in him, this is you. If you confess your sin, if you confess your need of him, this is you. God is also holy. God is not only mighty, but also holy, which is a blessing. You see, his holiness is not just a cool fact about God. His holiness is very important as it determines how he interacts with us. Have you ever thought about this? That God's holiness is not passive or static. It is actively expressed through his justice and through his love. If God were almighty but not holy, we would be in trouble because he would be able to sin against us. But our God is three times holy. God cannot tolerate sin and injustice, and he pursues righteousness and restoration throughout creation. His love is pure and perfect, always directed towards what is good, uh, what is good and true. And we may hear these things, and still, when we think of God's holiness, we might be tempted to see as something that separates us from him. Because after all, he is holy and lifted high, and we are not. Did you know that God's holiness is actually good news for us? Here's why. Herman Vaving says this. He says, the holiness of God is not a burden laid upon us, but a glorious invitation to participate in the very life of God himself. As he is holy, so we are called to be holy, not through our own efforts, but by the power of his grace. This leads me uh, to, to the third perfection that Mary lists here, which is mercy. If God were mighty and holy, but not merciful, we would be doomed. So Mary celebrates God's mercy, not only towards her, but towards all generations. The promise of a coming Savior was the greatest demonstration of God's mercy towards His people. Mary knows God's favor towards her is unmerited. She knew what Paul tells us in Romans, that we all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. This is our humble estate. But she knew what Paul tells us or reminds us of in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Church, we often talk about mercy in the church. But have you ever thought about how countercultural mercy truly is? Even in the context of Christmas, the world doesn't really have a category for unmerited mercy. Santa Claus keeps a list, right? And if you're nice, you get stuff. But if you're naughty, you get coal. The gospel tells us that we are all indeed naughty. And that we deserve something worse than coal. We deserve death. But in His grace, God offers salvation. And this should move us to worship. That our mighty, holy God is also full of mercy. And that he offers salvation, not to those that have it all figured out, 
But to those who like Mary realize they are broken and spiritually needy and spiritually poor, utterly unable to save themselves. You see, one of the ways believers are tempted sometimes is not that we don't believe in God's mercy, but we question its vastness. You see, we often think we might be running out of mercy, so we hesitate to approach God. As a parent runs out of uh, patience with his children, and I confess that as a dad, it may have happened a time or two. We often hesitate when we approach God because we think he may be running out of patience and mercy. But as Spurgeon says, the mercy of God is not a drop, but an ocean. Not a well, but a boundless sea. Do you need mercy this morning? Run to God. Throw yourself in the vast ocean of God's mercy. Because no matter what your heart tells you, there is grace for you today. And Mary praises God for His mercy, not only towards her, but towards all generations. You see, Mary understands she is part of a greater story. And here's my last point. The promise of the gospel reminds us that we are part of God's story of salvation. And for that, I want you to look at verses 54 and 55 that says, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to her fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Do you see how Mary is putting herself in the greater context of God's story of redemption? As we get near the end of Mary's song, we see that Mary understands she is part of God's story of salvation. She knows this isn't about her Uh, This isn't about her role in the story, but about God's story. Mary is aware that the news that the angel delivered to her, the promise of Christmas, was the fulfillment of uh, of a promise the people of God have been waiting for since the beginning of time. You may remember that the first promise of a Savior came in the third chapter of Genesis, where God says to the snake in the garden, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, God promised a snake crusher, a deliverer, a redeemer. Mary sees how this promise is being fulfilled here. But she knows the promise doesn't end with her. It is a promise that will bring salvation to many from generation to generation. Church, This gospel promise should remind us that we are not the end goal of God's salvation. But God saves us with a purpose. The purpose to make Him known around the world. I want us to look now at Revelations 21 verses 1 through 4 because here's the spoiler alert, things that are coming. John tells us the things that are to come in Revelation 21. Verse 1 says this, He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will uh, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain uh, anymore. For the former things have passed away. Did you see, 
Not only do we greatly benefit from the salvation that comes through the Son of God, but we also get to be part of the story of redemption. The gospel promise reminds us that this is not all about us. It's about God's plan for His people that stretches into history past and is much larger than, than just His dealings with us. Lincoln Duncan says this, he says, The Christian life is healthiest when it is anchored in our understanding that there is something bigger than just us. God's plan. And, in it, and it is more than just us individually. It's about all of God's people. You see, as the world preaches, uh, preaches to us these days that it's all about us. It's all about our wants, our needs, the things that we want or the things that we deserve. The gospel reminds us that the promise of Christmas is about God's plan of redemption. I started this morning by talking about how Advent starts in the dark. How during this season we are to look around to be reminded of the brokenness of this world. But it's also a season for us to look up and to behold the beauty of the promises ahead of us. Mary received a great and wonderful promise. But we too have a great promise to look forward to. And that is the fact that one day Christ is coming back for those that belong to him. Can I ask you this morning? Are you one of them? And as I ask the worship team to come here, let me ask you, as you think of Christmas, what is it about it that moves your heart? Is it the lights? Is it the songs? Is it the presents? Is it the food? Is it the people around the table? Is it even the illusion of the magic of Christmas? Or are you like Mary moved by the mercy and goodness of God that led to Christmas? Do you belong to God? Well, let us worship Him. If you do not belong to Him today, would you consider giving your life to Him? Because this promise of Christmas, the promise of a Savior, is for you too if you come to Him. All you have to bring is not your obedience. It's not your record. It's not that you're a good boy or a good girl. All you need to bring to him is your need of him. Church, what do you say we join Mary in magnifying the Lord this morning by singing together about what Christmas is truly about? Let us stand, church. <laughs>